Okay, look, when we named the show No One Knows Anything, and we told you it was a podcast about all the times conventional wisdom is wrong in politics, you knew, I knew, everyone knew we were eventually going to get to this guy. It is literally the most obvious thing possible. But let's go through the motions anyway, shall we? So here's what Pundit sounded like on June 16th, 2015, and for weeks and weeks after that. If you're doubting that this is real, Reuters has confirmed the filing. His website is live at DonaldJTrump.com. Polling history and just general logic would suggest Trump will not be president. But this is a man who revels in publicity, which means he's going to take this thing as far as he possibly can. I can't tell if this is real politics. Is there a way to figure that out? We all know he's not actually trying to be president of the United States. He's just trying to stir the pot to keep his brand out there. And that's just what he's been doing. You treat him like a reality television show star. I'm sorry. There's how many people running now in the Republican primary? And here's what the news sounded like this week after the results of the Indiana primary came in. Good morning, I'm Elaine Quijano. There's one fewer person on the campaign trail today. Last night's primary in Indiana was a make or break contest and it broke Ted Cruz. Donald Trump delivered a crushing blow to Cruz, putting him on a glide path towards securing the Republican nomination. People that have said the worst things about me, I've never had things said about me like this. You know, in my businesses, I've always been very respected. People didn't talk to me this way. But in politics, it's easy. The worst things, and they're calling now, and they're calling us all, and they're saying we'd love to get on the train, the Trump train, they call it, but we'd love to get on the team. This is No One Knows Anything, the politics podcast from BuzzFeed News. I'm your host, Evan McMorris Santoro, and today we're talking about what this unexpectedly long primary season, which technically is not even over yet, has taught us. We're going to talk with Debbie Wasserman Schultz, chair of the Democratic Party, about facing Trump, which no one thought would ever happen, and about facing critics of her own party's convoluted and often very bumpy nominating process which no one expected would ever be exposed like it has been this year. We're going to hear from two voters who participated in that democratic process, and we're going to hear from Washerman Schultz about the concerns that they have about it. What she says may surprise you. Joining me is Darren Sands, one of my fellow political reporters at the BuzzFeed DC Bureau, although we're both here in New York, which is fitting because it's Trump's home hometown we could walk to trump tower right now we could we, we could go get a trump burger or a trump steak or a trump salad <laughs> <laughs> all right let's just make sure just check my math on this when donald trump announced his presidency way back last year nobody thought that was going to end with trump being the presumptive nominee of the republican party right I mean, basically nobody thought. Oh, I did. I, I No. <laughs> um, <laughs> look, it, yeah. And the thing about that is we heard all those clips and they sound almost like they could have been from two years ago. But, but not, it's not even from like a year back. It's interesting because now we're going to go into one of these weird moments that happens in uh, the political evolution of the country, which is things that seemed really 
weird and impossible to imagine two weeks ago become true. And in two weeks from now, that's just going to be what normal is. Trump is going to be a new normal very soon. But it's important that we don't get away from the fact of how weird this actually is that this has happened. It's very, very weird. So we had Debbie Wasserman Schultz over to the BuzzFeed headquarters here in New York uh, on Tuesday to do an interview about a bunch of other stuff. And obviously, I could not resist asking her about this weird moment in politics with Donald Trump about to take the nomination. So we're taping this on Tuesday, May 3rd, which is the day of the Indiana primary. And it looks very much like we're going to wake up Wednesday morning to a world where Donald Trump really, truly is the Republican nominee. What does it mean for us to live in that world where this has finally happened and Trump is the nominee of a major political party? Well, I mean, this is this has been happening in the Republican Party in a slow rolling boil for six years now. I mean, he'll be the nominee for all intents and purposes. And the way I describe this is the the right-wing Tea Party extremists really have reached the point where they say to the establishment, so-called establishment, we tried it your way with McCain and with Romney. Now we're going to do it our way. And unfortunately, because you have a lot of moderate Republicans who care more about power and holding on to it than they do about doing the right thing, they did not do what they needed to do to push back on the extremism. They cowered in the corner, and they let it, they, they let it overtake them. And so now they are laying in the bed that they made. But everybody else has to live in it, too, I guess. And we all have to sort Sad. of deal with the next no, few No, we don't, because we're going to beat them. <laughs> so. Well, that's my question. Like, so basically now it's just a default win, right? You get to go home, and you get to go Absolutely. to bed early. That's what and... the Trump people would like us to presume. Uh-huh. Uh, and, uh, but on the contrary, unlike the uh, Republicans who were asleep for too long and didn't realize that this could happen, we have not been asleep. Okay, so this is not the general election for you to just like binge watch all the Netflix that you haven't had a chance to see, right? You're gonna, you're still gonna be <laughs> that would be no. Be, okay, all right. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, do you think any states are gonna be in play now though with Trump? Like, does it change the nature? I mean, I've heard people talk about maybe Georgia being a potential Democratic pickup now. It, do you have a sense that maybe the like the map changes at all with Trump being the nominee? We do think. I mean, without naming names, I do think that. Well, name some names. Name well, some names. I mean, if you look at Georgia, for example, Obama got 45% of the vote. The demographics have changed in Georgia, and minority populations, both African-American and Hispanic, are growing there. With a nominee as extreme and as bigoted and as misogynist as um, Donald Trump is, you know, you not only have the opportunity for us to turn out voters that maybe would have sat on the, have, been, have been sitting on the sidelines in those minority communities that he's alienating, but also who we're win- who we have the potential to win over from the republican side or who will stay home because they can't bring themselves to come out and vote for a nominee like him yeah i mean so so yeah. with those dynamics in a state like georgia in a state like arizona for example um, donald trump is not very popular in utah I mean, I'm not going to predict that we'll win Utah, but there okay, are states... That was going to be my headline off this no, podcast. No, 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 right. Like, don't do that. That's not <laughs> what I'm saying. <laughs> but there are states potentially in play 
depending on on the, how the dynamic plays out. Yeah, because mostly what we hear about is this idea of just sort of dread, like dread of this. Like everyone has dread of this uh, of this Trump election and what it's going to mean. But it sounds like maybe there are some parts of it that could be seen as opportunities for you. Like you think there's opportunities for I don't you to dread make it. some. Okay. I, I, I look. I look at it. I mean, bring it on. I, I look look at it as a, as a, a challenge and an opportunity. So it's kind of interesting, Darren, how hard Debbie Wasserman Schultz pushes back on the idea that this is just going to be a gimme election now for the Democrats, right? Because there's a lot of people who look at this and think, hey, I don't have to tune back into political news till January 2017 when Hillary Clinton is sworn in. They have a healthy respect for what Trump has been able to do in the Republican primary. And it seemed to me that she was genuinely taking him seriously as a candidate, which is something we would have never thought we'd see 14 months ago. But there are uh, also lessons to be learned from the Democratic primary, which also went on a lot longer than anyone thought. Because it's gone on so long, it's given us a look under the hood of the Democratic nominating process, how they pick their nominee. Turns out, It's a really messy, bumpy ride to the Democratic nomination. Every state has different rules, and it seemed like basically no state was prepared to deal with the increased turnout of 2016. Difficult procedures and archaic rules bolstered the case for some Sanders supporters. The system was rigged for Clinton, even though those rules existed long before Clinton ever ran for president. And the crazy, crazy caucuses led Clinton supporters to complain that that system was rigged for Bernie. We called a couple of people who participated in that Democratic primary nominating process early, early on. Kyra Say and Carter Bell are both Iowa voters. Uh, My name is Kyra Say and I caucused for Bernie. Uh, My name is Carter Bell and I caucused for Hillary Clinton. Oh, you're both there? Are, are, Are you in the same room? Yeah, is that weird? got a Bernie and Hillary supporter in the same room. Yes. Well, whose room is it? Where are you? Um, I have a dungeon um, right below my office. No, I'm just joking. (laughs) We're in we're in my office on campus. All right. So tell me about where you caucused. Where where was this thing held? Just give me all for a person who's never been to one before. So it's at uh, 7 p.m. And ours was at um, our Iowa City Public Library. And we were supposed to just have the big meeting room (laughs) in the public library, um, which I don't know, probably has a capacity of like two or three hundred at most. Uh, But about 700 people showed up to the caucus. So you're outside in the cold waiting to go into a packed public library. There's not enough room for all of you. Yeah, where it's very hot in the public library, too. Yeah, clothes definitely came off. Mm-hmm. You know, people mm-hmm. were like laying on the floor asking for water. <laughs> <laughs> this sounds like this sounds like a torture chamber. That's like trying to do democracy in it any way. Does sound like you it. know, anything for burning. So people people were there and dedicated. So let's say I want to start a new state and I want that state to participate in the presidential nominating process. Would you recommend that I hold a caucus in my state or do I hold a primary? I mean, I feel a lot of love and loyalty to the Iowa caucuses, but a primary just allows so many more people to participate. Even though the retail politics aspect of it was so cool, like truly seeing your neighbors, your classmates, um, trying to convince undecided people allowed me to get a lot better on Hillary Clinton's issues. And I was literally had to convince people to stand in my hallway, I guess, (laughs) 
Um, so that was really cool, but I don't know. There's just so many people that I know could have come or at least participated in a different way. I guess for the folks who come to a caucus, you don't have to know where you stand. Mm, yeah. And I think that's the exciting piece um, because honestly, I came to the caucus with the you know thought in my mind that I was going to listen authentically to whoever approached me from either camp. And so um, that's what I think is cool about the caucus. If you were a new state, my response would probably be a primary. But I do think maybe before the primaries, there could be some official hosting of a caucus yeah. <laughs> that was like, you know, unofficial in terms of like counting, but to have folks engage with each other, because I think uh, in today's age, we lose that opportunity a lot with social media. Um, and so to, to have face-to-face conversation about what matters to you um, in the future of your nation, um, I think is, is dope. Oh man, I really miss talking to Iowans. You guys like, know so much about politics. This is so cool. Kyra, Carter, thank you so much for talking to us. And, uh, you know, I hope that you all your caucus and primary dreams come true. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks, Evan. And keep in mind that no one does caucuses better than Iowa. It's the, it's, it's the gold standard of caucuses. It's, it's built into the fabric of, like, who they are as a state. This is the Hawkeye state. They do caucuses. Other and- states are not as good at it. No, this is the best. This <laughs> yeah. is this is like the actual best. Evan, like what? So what did you see in these caucuses? Like, tell me like the craziest things that you saw in Iowa at these caucuses. I think that the concerns, as we heard from Kyra and Carter, the concerns about caucuses transcended both candidates supporters. I wrote a story about this, about how bad caucuses had gotten after Nevada, where I watched people who Uh, On a Saturday, some had negotiated the ability to caucus during work hours at some casinos on the Strip. And at some casinos, they hadn't. Now, now this, of course, leaves out everybody else in Iowa who – I mean in Iowa, in Nevada who works on a Saturday not in a casino, which is a lot of people. (laughs) It's a very big state with a lot of places to work in that aren't casinos. However, just talking about casinos, some casino workers could caucus, some couldn't. It was based only on their employer, right? And Utah, which is one of which is one of my favorite stories, people get to the caucus site. There's huge long lines to get there. More people showed up than anybody expected. Somebody at the caucus site, uh, an official, tells somebody, "Hey, can you run down to Kinkos and whip up some more ballots?" They still have ran out of ballots. They still have Kinkos. Yeah, I, I mean Kinkos. I don't know. Maybe it's a. I mean, when I was a kid, it was called a Copytron. <laughs> Okay, which I think is probably like and people are like a copytron. We we wrote a dinosaur to copytron, and then in Maine, the mayor of Portland, Maine, which is the biggest, you know, I think they think it's the biggest city in Maine. He's watching this process in his own city where people are online forever, and it's cold, and they're waiting to get into these caucus sites. And when they get in, they're too packed, and fire marshals are shutting them down, and all this nonsense. And he says, "Look, this is this is, this is unacceptable. We need to just change." Over to a primary. Which he threw like, up his hands. It was like, we need to change this thing over. We can't do this anymore. We can't do this anymore. And then, of course, we had with the primaries, too. When we got to New York, New York which did not expect to be as prominent in the Democratic primary process as it was. It's so late in the calendar. So we get here, and all these people who didn't expect to be part of the primary at all, they find out that they can't primary because they didn't register to vote a year ago. This happened to my best friend from elementary school 
Jeffrey Rand, who is the biggest Bernie supporter on Facebook that I know, who all of a sudden figured out that he couldn't vote for Bernie. And it was like a sad moment. So is this really the best way to choose a nominee? This is a question that Democrats are now facing after this long primary process. And we actually got a chance to ask Debbie Wasserman Schultz about it uh, when she came to the BuzzFeed headquarters. I asked her a lot about the Democratic nominating process, but also she happens to be a congresswoman from Florida. So I also asked her about the Florida man meme thing. I love this. Well, let's shift a bit back over to uh, the Democratic side of things. It is the party that you run after all. Yes. <laughs> um, so the name of this podcast is No One Knows Anything, which is like my sort of wry take. Or, or, I think it's wry. It's very self. Quite, I can say quite I'm very, troll. Very, quite very, very wry. Thank yes. you. I'm going to clip that and put that as a blurb. <laughs> um, and something I didn't know when the Democratic primary started is I never imagined I would need to know sort of what the caucus rules are in Idaho mm-hmm. or research the primary in New York. I never imagined the primary campaign would go on as long as it did. So everyone got a chance to look under the hood of the Democratic nominating process. And I wonder if you learned any lessons from that. And what do you think is the person who sort of is the manager of all this stuff? Well, are the places, th- you know, things that can be changed sure. with each passing election cycle. Our Rules and Bylaws Committee goes back and takes a look at how each of the primaries and caucuses has played out. And often the Rules and Bylaws Committee sends the party back to the drawing board because we want to make sure that their plan maximizes people's ability to cast a ballot. Mm -hmm. For example, Iowa added Saturday caucuses this time and made sure that working people who were really limited in their ability in previous caucuses to be able to go to the polls and vote if they were shift workers, you know, we sent them back and said, listen, you got to come back to us with more options for working people. And so I think the the changes that we made between 12 and 8 and 12 and and 16 um, have largely, you know, shaped the selection process in a way that will result in a very diverse and effective slate of delegates. You don't think we should just get rid of caucuses entirely? I mean, I watched so many of these caucuses and people just were just, I mean, it's so hard to vote in a caucus. There's always the debate over that. Uh And what do you think? I I personally prefer primaries. So, uh, you know, and I can say that because I'm not going to be chair the next time this is. So now I am free to say what my own preference is. I I prefer primaries just because they're simpler, like you said, um, and because they are more democratic. It's also uh, uh, (laughs) we, we do have a secret ballot in this country for a reason. Um, you sort of obliterate the idea of a secret ballot in a caucus because there are people gathering in a room and they are pooling themselves around the room for who they're for. Yeah. And, you know, maybe some people don't want that to be public. You know, there's intimidation that can you know, occur. So, again, just my opinion and not something that I would pursue changing. And I saw you on, on, on MSNBC on Monday and you mm-hmm. said you don't favor these so-called open primaries I don't. where independents can vote. Why don't you like those? Because I think the Democratic Party and the Republican Party's nominees should be chosen by members of our party. You know, it's our job once we have a nominee to sell them on our party's candidate. But if you have chosen not to be a member of our party, then, you know, to me, you are not entitled and should not be entitled to help decide who our party's nominee is. It means you haven't, you haven't worked to build the party. You have not done anything to you know, build the party's agenda, sh- to shape it. So this, uh, but but that, also I'm not that, – that's also something I'm not 
making a crusade. I keep getting asked this question. I'm not making it a crusade. I'm not going to try to right. change. You couldn't anyway. Those are also decided at the at the state level. And I'm sure you've been asked like approximately one million times at this point about superdelegates. Yeah. You think that system is good is... the way it works? Yes, I do. I okay. mean, the... The, the party created superdelegates, unpledged delegates, in 1984, which is the year I graduated from high school. So that gives you an idea of how long we've had them. Not, <laughs> not, a, not a recent creation. And they've never been involved in selecting who our party's nominee is. But you have party leaders and elected officials who have earned the right because they've helped build our party, because they represent our party, they're the, they're the leaders and the voice, they deserve a role in the convention too. So the perfect Debbie Washerman Schultz nominating process <laughs> is no caucuses, closed primary, superdelegate state. If it were all up to Debbie Wasserman Schultz, which it isn't, <laughs> um, because we're the Democratic Party. That's right. Th- that, so that's maybe how... add in just like, a bu- just like the chair decides. Maybe she's just, just add, just, let's make that look like You know that. what? I'm a Democrat, so I don't think the chair should, <laughs> it should just be the chair deciding. All right. It's a team effort. And finally, just talk to me a bit about um, being a politician from Florida. I mean, Florida is like the official internet meme state, right? <laughs> like Florida meme, right, Florida man. Think, right, if something, if something odd is going to happen. People are eating people's faces I, I don't off even with have bath to get, salts. Right, I don't have to get to the bottom of the article to, to know where the person lived. It's also a really interesting and powerful swing state with a lot of really interesting electorate in it. Florida is several states. The expression in Florida is the further north you go, the further south you get. Uh-huh. Um, it's a very eclectic mix of people. Well, do you, I mean, do you ever just want to say, like, hey, look, there are weirdos in New Mexico, too? Do you, I mean, do you ever want to be like this, this Florida man thing, this whole Florida weird it, people meme that we the have? The eclectic it's weir- mix of people that we have makes us special. People, okay. And there's a reason that we are now the third largest state in the country. Right, it, so, it, you know, right, everybody, right. It's all about Florida. The expression goes, it's all about Florida. It is all about it's Florida. It's all about Florida, whether it's a presidential election or whether it's your vacation. I mean, eventually, whenever I am somewhere else, I tell them they should care about two people in, in Congress, whoever represents you now, and me because I'm going to represent you when you retire and move to my district in 20 years. That must be nice. <laughs> Go back to Florida. <laughs> it's, it's not only nice, it's true. I tried to throw bath salts at her. People were running around Florida on bath salts, <laughs> eating their other people's faces off. <laughs> uh, all right. Who knows what's, what's going to happen uh, this this year? It's also like Trump's like second home state. Yep. Uh, Donald Trump is, in fact, a Florida man. <laughs> um, here's what we heard today. The primary season went longer than anyone expected and exposed issues in both parties. Democrats really didn't expect to face Trump, and now they are. They seem pretty excited about it, but they're also kind of gearing up and prepared for it. At the same time, Democrats who supported Bernie Sanders are really upset about the Democratic primary and how it worked. And the chair of the Democratic Party actually shares in some of those concerns, but also stands by her party's nominating process in others. So, Darren... With the primaries behind us, when it comes to the general election, do we know anything? No one knows anything, Evan. Um, I Look, I think Clinton's pivot on this has been effective. Um, she's been out there talking about big, broad contrast that I think can be boiled down to like good versus evil. Like that's what people understand her message is, to be, is about. Um, and I think that's how she's actually pivoting. 
as a person who is going to be sort of the embodiment of love and kindness. So we're going to have a candidate talking about love and kindness versus a candidate who has just talked about a lot of um, fear and danger, right? One of the things we don't know at all is what exactly happens when the dust clears after today. Today is Wednesday, the first day of Republican presumptive nominee Donald Trump. Republicans are feeling really sad. Democrats are feeling really good. There's a long way down the road. And when things start to gel for the general election, things could look very different than they do now. I, I And it's we don't really know what the election is going to look like. But I think that your take on it from the beginning is, is, is that this is the initial question. I think is probably pretty right. Listen, Darren, I want to thank you for coming in. I believe that you brought both love and kindness to this podcast. Thank you. And you also made podcasting great again. That's the third party candidate. <laughs> no One Knows Anything is produced by Meg Kramer. Polling history and just general logic would suggest Meg will not be president. Editorial oversight comes from Catherine Miller and Eleanor Kagan. And I pledge to eat a bag of rusty nails if either of them wins the Republican nomination. Production help comes from Julia Furlan and Antonia Sarahito. The chance of either of them winning the nomination and election is exactly zero. Thanks to Noriko Okabe at Argo Studios for recording the show. Now, seriously, does anyone other than Noriko truly believe her fame and fortune are going to get her anywhere in a Republican presidential primary, let alone a general election? Ryan Adams, who composed our music, is going to lose because he is crazy. And I'm your host, Evan McMorris-Santoro. And we're told from pretty much every analyst out there, liberal, conservative, doesn't matter, to not take Evan seriously. And they're right. Email us at no one knows anything at buzzfeed.com. You can find us on Twitter. We're at no one knows. And we'll be back next week with more things we don't know.